Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today's podcast features the first of the Palenque Norte lectures that were given at last year's Burning Man Festival. Now, you may wonder why it's taken so long for me to begin releasing these recordings, so I'm going to tell you. (laughs) Now, if you don't live here in the States, uh, well, you may not get this joke. But when a young child fails to turn in their homework at school, they would sometimes say, The dog ate my homework. Well, I'm going to give you that excuse on steroids. (laughs) You see, a tornado ate my recordings. (laughs) <laughs> Actually, they weren't my recordings. Uh, they belonged to fellow saloner and longtime friend of the salon, Frank Nucio. Now, what happened was that after returning from the burn uh, last year, and just as he was getting settled back into the default world, well, a tornado came through Dallas and wiped out a number of businesses, including his. And uh, that was where the computer was that held the Planque Norte recordings from 2019. It uh, took many weeks before FEMA would even let him back in to look through the rubble. But when he did, Frank found his computer and, uh, well, it worked well enough for him to recover these recordings for us. So thanks a million, Frank. Uh, without you, the 2019 Palenque Norte lectures would have been lost forever. And uh, so today I'm going to begin playing some recordings from that uh, lecture series. And the presentation I'm going to begin with today was given by my longtime friend and supporter of the salon, Eric Safani. Along with Eric is Chris Grasso, who also happens to be a lawyer, like me, uh, only much better and still active, I should add. (laughs) Their presentation brings together the values that shaped shamanism, along with today's struggle for the freedom to explore our own consciousness without government interference. And after their talk, I'll end the podcast with a few words of my own about the importance of shamanism in today's technical world. Now keep in mind that the Planque Norte lectures are given at Burning Man, and if you've ever been there, then, well, you already know that there's no escaping the constant sound of people, drums, and music in the background. So, after a minute or so of listening to this talk, I'm sure your mind is going to most likely tune out the background noise. But, uh, hey, (laughs) if you've been to a burn, this is going to bring back some nice memories. And, uh, hey, don't be surprised when the first voice you hear right now is mine. I'm with you here today so that I can introduce my good friend, Eric Safani who has, uh, well, Eric's been involved with me in the psychedelic salon for many years. Now, hey, can you in the back see me okay? Oh, wait, right, I'm in the back. Uh, or is this the side? Or are you also dazed and confused that uh, you haven't realized that my Irish humor just couldn't resist pretending to actually be with you on the playa right now? Believe me, I, I really wish that I was there with you, but alas, I actually recorded this message a few days ago when I asked Eric if it would be okay if I introduced he and his friend Chris Grasso. As you probably know, Chris is a lawyer, as I am, so it's really gratifying to know that as us older lawyers fade away, there's a crop of younger ones who are a lot smarter than we were, so I think you're going to be in good hands. 
As for Eric, or as I originally knew him, E-Rock X1, well, we've been through some uh, interesting times together, but <laughs> one that I've never told him about was back when one of my granddaughters was only four years old. And at the time, Eric had uh, just sent me some bookmarks that he printed. Uh, they had a psychedelic background, uh, my picture, and a blurb about the psychedelic salon. Well, to make a long story short, one afternoon when I was with my little granddaughter at the park, I noticed her handing out something to her playmates. And she was passing out promos for the salon to her little friends. <laughs> Needless to say, I quickly retrieved them from the kids before their mothers could discover who this guy was that was among them. Uh, <laughs> it was a close call, but it remains one of my fondest memories of that little girl who, well, she begins high school next month. So, uh, Eric, thank you for that, too. As you see, my connections with Eric are many and varied. And uh, he's been a great friend for many years, and now we get to listen to him here in the playa, live at Blanky Narty Lectures. It's all yours, Eric and Chris, so take it away. So that was a message from my friend Lorenzo. Uh, I don't know how many of you are familiar with the Psychedelic Salon podcast, but it's been going on since around 2003, and I wanted to play a little tribute uh, to the founders of Palenque, and I don't know how many of you are aware, but Palenque actually started in 1994 in uh, the Yucatan jungle with four guys, uh, one Terrence McKenna, Ken Simonton, Jonathan Ott, and uh, one of my teachers, Rob Montgomery. And they did that for 10 years, and uh, so Ken's over 90 now. And Lorenzo decided to pack the thing up and bring it to Burning Man in 2003. And so this is a long tradition and it's uh, meaningful for me because uh, 1994 was sort of where I began embarking on this uh, seriously. And uh, so it's a, it's a very special uh, group of people who've been doing this for about 27 years. I just want to take a moment to recognize those folks. And so our talk today is on shamanism and cognitive liberty. And uh, I actually met this guy, uh, Trailblazer, uh, giving a talk on shamanism about five years ago or so. And, uh, a, a young kid who seemed to know what he was talking about, and then I learned he was a, a criminal defense attorney and uh, he and I have been close friends ever since. And so as my teachers led to me coming here, I am really honored uh, to bring him uh, and carry this torch forward as it's gone uh, for millennia. And uh, so what is shamanism and why is it important? Uh, shamanism is an archaic practice that's gone on longer than recorded history. And it's a means of direct religious experience uh, for all sorts of purposes, healing, uh, prognostication, insight. In the jungle, I spent some time in the jungle uh, with one of the founders of Point Bay, who's uh, Rob Montgomery. And I had, uh, 
I guess it'd be easy for me to tell you why shamanism is meaningful in my life. Uh, it's a transformative tool, and uh, I I was born in an orphanage in East Los Angeles during the height of the gang-banging drug epidemic to my mother, who's uh, 15 years older than me, and I grew up in uh, drug houses and all kinds of violence and craziness. And, I stumbled onto this thing at a rave, and I immediately knew that's where I wanted to put my energy. And uh, from dance, uh, I was doing uh, visuals and laser projections and graphic designs for parties and digitizing uh, DJ rave mixtapes. And uh, I had the good fortune of meeting uh, Timothy Leary at one of these events. And, uh, who later connected asking me what I charged to bring all my stuff. And I said I'd do it for free. And uh, I began digitizing uh, a lot of uh, academic lectures on the subject. And many of those are on the Psychedelic Swan podcast. And so it's been a long, strange trip from where I started. Uh, up into the deep Amazon basin, uh, about 350 miles past Iquitos, where I also had the good fortune of being part of a multidisciplinary expedition who made contact with an isolated band of indigenous people named Mastiz. And when I'm at Burning Man, I often think of these guys because uh, they never absorbed or assimilated in the culture. They maintained their authentic selves as their ancestors had done since forever. And I think Burning Man, when I, when I met these people, I was astonished at how free they were. I mean, truly free. And uh, when I come to Burning Man, you know, we, it's sort of an archaic revival where we drop out of culture for a week and live as free people where we're not paying bills and punching the clock and doing all these things that we do to, to survive and it sort of reminds me of that and so this tradition of shamanism is a, a long process and it's been great to watch it uh, evolve into what it has it's uh now a recognized legitimate science that even the FDA and DEA recognize. So that's a little about myself, and uh, I'd like to hand this over to Chris for a moment because he has some interesting insights that I'd like for y'all to hear. I feel like I need to stand up for this. Um, first of all, it's an honor to be here, and I'll make it that this portion short. Honor to be here speaking next to my good friend Eric. Honored to speak right after a very inspirational figure in this world here, Rick Doblin. Um, and so, I, with that being said, he spoke a little bit about Burning Man. He spoke a little bit about um, you know uh, a cultural programming that's changed. And I want to speak about a theater of perception. I want to speak about lenses. I want to speak about hallways of mind, programming of neural neural imprints um, in, in your brain. And so. Uh, that, and that's what we're talking about here, for example, like at Burning Man, you know, you have a little bit of a, a dissolving of social imprints. And um, similarly, I think a, a really good friend of mine, um, Space Cowboy over there, 
uh, came up with a very good, we were riffing on this last night, and he says, you know, it's sort of like you disconnect all the nodes and watch how they reconnect in a more way from the bottom up. And that's sort of what we're talking about here. At Burning Man, it has to do with the 10 principles. We slowly, you know, uh, change the way we interact, change the way we see ourselves, change the way we see others, change the way we see community. And so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about chemical lenses, changing the perception. Um, we're talking about op what I could be described as operating systems. Um, and I know that's just using our fancy technical, um, you know, uh, modern language to describe it, but I like it. You know, some of us run old operating systems, some of us run Mac OS, some of us run Windows XP, um, and sometimes using a, a lens, a lens shifting experience of some sort can shift us from one operating system to the other, maybe one step to the left, one step to the right. Um, and so, you know, I want to talk a little bit more expansively um, when, we, uh, when we think about, like, you know, the nature of perception, consciousness, um, you know, how beings in this world that we know about, you know, can, can information process the, the variables around them and react according to their, you know, their beings. We start with like you know small genetic forms like for example you know Precambrian, Precambrian soup-like things. They, their very genetic material seems to propel them towards, for example, sugars in their environment or something like that. Um, but as far as complex egos, complex forms of culture that can support the type of operating system to run as a 21st century human, we're talking about something different. From there, you go to like, for example, let's go all the way down the biology chain to like you know whatever like a dog or a mammal you have experiential learning where now you have like Pavlovian like programming Pavlov being a psychologist um, in the uh, 20th century who pioneered behaviorism which means basically you have like a in his classic experiment really briefly in a nutshell you have like a dog who gets conditioned to salivate to the, the stimulus of a, of a bell and then eventually they, they, they feed him with the bell they feed him with the bell they feed him with the bell they take away the food and then just the bell creates the, sal the, the salivation in their mouth um, so, um, so with that, you can ex you can program into neural imprinting in, in behaviorism in that way, in an experiential learning. But human beings take it one level further. There's like an abstract programming that happens. There's a cultural hijack of the mind. This process that from the first man saying, you know, the pointing out a lion and going Ooh, or whatever it might be, that type of uh, cultural hijack begins to program our minds at an abstract level and suddenly we get theaters of perception these corridors of mind you ever walked out of like a movie like a 007 movie and you're kind of feeling like a spy a little bit you know dun -dun -dun -dun, you know like that type of thing you still got that theater of mind um, uh, sort of you know you 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 like you walk out of the movie theater you still feel it and so I'm talking about in other words a change of lens and so um, how does language and symbol use and cultural programming um, change our perception? Um, it's, it's, a, it's a spilling of colored lenses upon the mind. Um, it's, it's sort of like, like I said, it's a hijack of the brain. Um, and, and so uh, with that, we, we, I, I want to go directly to plant chemicals and, and use of, of, of a, a purposeful, individual, um, uh, lens-changing experience. Um, and I want to speak about indigenous um, use primarily, or at least first, but with that, I, I think Eric might have a comment on indigenous use. So thinking back at uh, my time in the jungle, um, working with indigenous shaman, um, all sorts of purposes, but the person I generally regard as my shaman uh, was a, a man named Luido. And he was kidnapped 
as a child uh, by the Mastis. He was actually a wee toto. And uh, a doctor on our expedition said he displayed uh, signs of untreated meningitis. He didn't see very well, he didn't hear very well, he couldn't speak very well, uh, he didn't move very well, and he suffered from violent epileptic seizures. And his adopted father told him he had a gift. And his gift was that he had one foot in this world and one foot in the world of the ancestors. And I think, what a different experience for a young person uh, in our culture who may have uh, this disability or perceived disability. And we must fix you. There's something wrong with you. You can't quite uh, keep up with everyone else. Uh, but to tell them uh, that they have a gift and you can learn how to use this gift and I'll teach you how to use this gift and you could be of service to a community. Uh, I sure wish that we had something like that here. Uh, coming here to Burning Man where it's dusty and dry, I mean, everything there is alive and uh, it, it feels for me very much like home and if you have any interest in ever going I, I highly recommend it. it it will certainly change your life uh, for the better um, all right um, so you know, I spoke very you know, with a lot of different concepts about being able to change your perception, and it's kind of a weird thing because you know we have these hardwired neurons. I, I want to go more specifically to, to how this is practic can practically change an individual's consciousness or social consciousness at large. Um, so when we talk about like indigenous use, um, imagine yourself like Eric saying, "Go visit in one of these tribes out there," and you say, "Oh, you know, I got a cut on my leg. Um, do you have any neosporin? Oh, you better." Bet they don't have a neosporin, but they got this plant over here. You just take a little bit of that, put it on there. Oh, okay, all right. Well, actually, uh, I ate something bad, and it really messed up my stomach. You got something for that? Oh, you better believe it. Their relationship with the plant kingdom is so, uh, you know, uh, well-tuned that they, they have this type of connection. So you're telling me that the neocortex, the real focus of the cataract, the catalyst of what it is to be a human, what it is to evolve culture on the level that we've done it, evolve thinking and consciousness on the level that we've done it. We're not going to have an intimate connection with the plant kingdom at the neocortex level. I would suggest that's the most essential connection that we have with the plant kingdom. And, and, and traditionally, it's been a major catalyst in evolving culture, all and up from the indigenous tribes. And so what are we talking about? We're talking about thinking about thinking. We're talking about metacognition. It's kind of like you're going to the eye doctor and you're sitting there at the eye doctor with the lens thing. Is this better? Or is that better? You have to shift back. Oh, well, let me see the other one. Okay, but what if you were controlling it yourself? What if you had the ability no longer just to be the subject of the cultural imprints that are hitting you and the way that you've experienced the world and the habitual corridors of your mind that have formed once you perceive you know, reality, and you could take that and you're at the eye doctor yourself and you're going, you know, turn to the thing yourself. There's something about that, um, that, that it, it, an individual's so sovereignty over the, his or her own mind 
that is not only powerful, but I'd say a catalyst for the evolution of consciousness. And so I would say that a lot of our human success over time has, has focused on this ability to be able to think in new ways. And then we come up with things like, you know, for example, um, you know, I, I don't know word for word, but the Einstein quote, we can't solve yesterday's, or we can't solve tomorrow's problems with yesterday's forms of thinking. We sort of need to like stare at the night sky and say, you know, oh, uh, those are distant fires. The night sky has been staring at us this, this whole time, but it's taken, you know, many different shifts of lens to understand in a way and scratching at what's out there. And so the same energetic reality has been necessarily facing us the entire time. And our task as we move into the chaos of the 21st century is to figure out new ways to wrap our minds around it. And so taking an ability to go to be that eye doctor and take it upon yourself to change your own lens, whether it's chemically through something like what we talked about, Rick Doblin was just talking about the decriminalization of psilocybin that's going on, that's currently experienced in Denver, the initiate that's gonna go on in 2020 in Oregon. These things are happening right now. Um, and and these, are, these are tools that people are using right now. And before I turn it over once more, I just wanna suggest that in my mind, in the 21st century, if not sooner rather than later, we're gonna have the ability to have a technological shift of mind that's much more precise than the wide swath of effects that you might get from you know, your favorite uh, you know, mind-altering chemical like cannabis or something like that. There might be some effects that you enjoy from that, and there might be some effects that don't serve you as well. But I have a strong belief with things like uh, Elon Musk, Neuralink, and stuff like that, we're gonna have the ability to shift our lens non-invasively through technology and so this conversation goes much is much grander than just using humanity's oldest form of changing our minds and catalyzing our minds which are plant chemicals I recently had a recreational uh, psilocybin experience <laughs> and <laughs> I found myself wishing that I was uh, in a more ceremonial setting. Uh, I, I, I wanted to start doing the work, and that's what shamanism is, it's work. And it's one thing to see uh, pretty lights and, and uh, visual distortions, but it's another thing to actually try and coax something out of it. And uh, many people, fear a quote-unquote bad trip and uh, I maintain that that's where you yield the most rewarding work because our culture tends to want to amuse ourselves to death by focusing on meaningless distractions uh, watching other people live their lives on TV and what a name of shamanism is, is to look within. So most indigenous traditional uh, shamanic ceremonies are almost always in total darkness, uh, in a circle uh, where you set an intention and you observe and you experience and then you process and then you integrate. And so I'd like to encourage everybody, if you're not doing that, to look into it a little bit. Because we tend to not want to look at the things that we don't like, especially about ourselves. And I think disassociating uh, with nature, living in artificial environments, has really done us ourselves a disservice. So. 
instead of uh, begging to not have a Nevada trip and a, a safe setting, uh, embrace it and see what it has to tell you about yourself. Because there are things that uh, we repress or we don't want to think about that manifest in our lives in other ways, whether it be uh, a dis-ease or anxiety or depression or addiction. These things come from somewhere. And that somewhere is some, some place deep inside of you with a, a trauma that you may be trying to forget. And I've talked to people who uh, think they have no traumas. This mystery of life is one thing that every single one of us absolutely share is we're all born to die. And we don't know where we go after. And a big piece of uh, human I don't want to say mythology, but I'll say mythology. You know, if you do these things, and you, you'll go to the clouds in the sky. Uh, it's okay to be a mystery and not know. I think that's a big part of this experience of life. And, uh, and uh, we tend to not want to think about death. We disassociate. We outsource uh, slaughter of food, uh, fighting of wars. Um, that does not uh, mean that we've somehow managed to escape these things. They still leave. So even if it's only coming to terms with your own mortality, uh, my shaman would call, uh, I had an experience where I was torn apart you know, by jaguars. And uh, numerous times. And, pulling my body apart and I was this wounded creature in the middle of a maloka and uh, this like fucked up psychedelic lion king circle of life thing where I was eaten by a cat and I became the cat and I was eaten by the cat and I'm like alright I got the message I have not escaped the circle of life even though uh, we managed to hunt anything above us off the food chain into extinction uh, we, we still have to come to terms with that so try setting an intention and observe and don't evade, uh, pay attention, and then have a solid plan uh, to integrate and assimilate what you've experienced. And I've seen people make the most significant changes in their lives, myself included. So I encourage you to not look away, pay attention, especially to ourselves. I've been speaking a lot in like philosophical generalities, and I dig the fact that Eric's bringing up these personal tools for practical use. Um, I, I, I want to focus my talk a little bit more, but I want to remind you again what we're talking about here. You know, you, you know, even using the term ego and some sort of habitual perceptual tubes that you know reality runs through your sensorium and into your you know cognition and default mode network. Um, that is being changed, you can tell, like classically said in these type of cultures, dissolving ego, lens shifting, changing the format of perceptions. Okay, and now, now, now that we're back here at this sufficiently general spot, let's talk about, for example, the First Amendment. We live in a country where we have the First Amendment here, and what's really the First Amendment about? 
Um, is it is it for example freedom of assembly? I can get together with anybody I w- I'd like to, and you know, give them a hug and, and that type of thing. Is it about um, freedom of speech? Like I can say whatever the hell I want, even if it's not correct or you know factually correct or whatever you want to say. Is it about you know freedom of religion? Just to say I believe in any you know random whacked out thing, so you can't tell me anything about that. I'd say it points to something deeper. All these things are surface level um, understandings. It points to something deeper to say that we have an ability to express our conscience into the free marketplace of ideas and that the literal engine of democracy is our ability to keep these channels free. Our ability to have the, 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 the individual person and their collective group express their conscience or what means, what, what means most to them in this reality the way they perceive this chaos of energetic reality. Because remember, like Terence McKenna says, reality is stranger than we can suppose. And our best way to march into this 21st century of AI and all this bunch of crazy stuff that we're going to run into when we do this global project of becoming a global culture here on, on Earth um, is, is to have as many different channels of thought available to us as possible. If you're going to assemble a group, oh, I'm assembling a team to go to Mars or whatever it may be, you better not assemble it as all white men or something like that. It, it better be a group of culturally diverse men, women, everything in between, because that's going to be your most powerful group. That's going to be the group that has the ability to perceive the chaos of energetic reality from as many different angles as possible and amalgamate it into a whole that we can be integrated and used in the new level of cultural programming. And so, and so that's what we're talking about when we're talking about First Amendment engine of democracy. And, and the, 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 that, I believe, should, should fuel the idea that over your own mind, you are sovereign. And that's, that's again, you know, pointing directly to the interconnection between the First Amendment and, and, and democracy. And how does that affect us? Here? How, how, do, how does that you know, go into what we're saying here? If it wasn't clear enough, um, you know, you're, you, you've, if you have, again, the, the, a cookie cultural model of a person inputting their you know, literal vote or their set of, you know, even their words they use and enter into just the marketplace of ideas and general, you know, colloquial talk just from person to person. If it's the same cookie cutter model, we're going to get, you know, channels of thought that, that equal certain ends that, that are not necessarily, you know, from the ground up of all our possible perceptions, but rather fed to us from the top down and, and we take it whole cloth. And so, you know, we need to dissolve that. And that's a, a common word in this area too, dissolving those imprints in order to let, like Space Cowboy says, have their, the connections, you know, disconnect and then reconnect themselves from like a ground up kind of way. And so um, I'd really like to speak very briefly um, on, for example, like, like spiritual use. This is just me sort of throwing out some conjecture, but you know, you have this default mode network, you have this set of perceptions that you and your, you know, hundred billion neuron specific snowflake imprinting and all the ener- energy that gets channeled through this long mess of tangles that is your brain. Um, uh, and, and those perceptions create certain notions of reality. You know, one thing that I would suggest about spiritual use is not only that it connects you with your subconscious in the sense that no longer is your brain, you know, being fed from, like I said, this default mode network, but you get, you know, maybe a more, you get echoes from disparate parts of your brain that are not normally connected. And I'd say that's touching on the subconscious, but also I have this feeling that there's this like 
baseline conscious energy. We talked about it in, in the last few speakers, wonderful speakers, talked a little bit about you know having this, this resounding feeling that we're all connected. And that just sounds like another, um, maybe you know maybe to the wrong, maybe not to anybody here, but maybe in a normal group, that's sort of an inanity of the, the countercultural movement from the 60s. Oh, everyone, everyone's one, we're all together. But what I'm scratching at here is that it's also this sense that our, our, our imprinting, our neuronal programming creates the, the necessary cultural estrangement to make us fluid as citizens, as consumers, as whatever it may be. And uh, even if you're a tribesman, even your own tribe back in the day programmed you to a certain extent to you know cut up the world away from the baseline conscious energy. And so not only is there a connection to subconscious, but you're often forging sort of new um, um, purposeful connections that really I think, um, well, rather let me step back and just say, the subconscious and this feeling of like connecting to a baseline conscious energy, or in other words, peeling away the onion as, as feasibly much as you can and sort of connect to baseline conscious energy. With that, I'll turn it over. Uh, so in my shamanic practice, uh, besides confronting uh, that we all give up the ghost, I think everybody could uh, has had their heart broken. Um, they've been wounded emotionally in some way and so we shut ourselves off to not be subjected uh, to that pain and, uh, and in the process we just create more pain and after my last ceremony I had uh, wrote a little something well, if it's okay with you I'd like to share Pain and heartbreak are essential to the human experience. While they may cause temporary suffering, there lies within an opportunity to learn a valuable lesson that if used wisely force us to evolve into a new state of being. Over the long term, only a modicum of positive results are ever achieved driven by anger, fear, hurt, or frustration. When we are no longer able to change the situation, we are challenged to change ourselves. Between every sensation, emotion, and thought, there is a space. And in that space is the power to choose our response. Every decision and action we make co-creates the reality in which we inhabit. This is the key to manifesting the life we truly desire, deserve, right now, right here, within our reach, if only we have the courage to grasp it. One of my cherished friends and mentors once said, nature loves courage. You make the commitment and nature will respond to that commitment by removing impossible obstacles. Dream the impossible dream and the world will not grind you. It'll lift you up. This is what many great teachers, gurus, and philosophers who really counted, who really touched alchemical gold, those who pierced the veil between us and the divine this is what they understood. This is how magic is done. For when it's all over, all that defines us are those magical moments that made us feel alive. This is the truth said in the song by so many poets and proclaimed as the ultimate wisdom of many thinkers. The truth is, love is the highest goal we could inspire. Love is the opium that generally, genuinely comforts the pain of life. The shaman's song, the baptism of rebirth anew, the enlightened state of nirvana, the absolute apex of consciousness, our 
time is far too precious for it to exist in any state other than total and unconditional love. The salvation of humanity is through love and in love. Open your hearts, live in love. Let our final breath not be full of fear and regret, but in our final exhalation, the moment before we join the ancestors, let us proclaim with absolute surety and sincerity, I am unconditional love. I did have just a couple more points. I mean, I'm kind of scratching over the same thing, but let me summarize by saying the recogni recognize that freedom itself is fueled by the ability to call upon a more full spectrum of thought. Um, and so, uh, how is this happening today? We already talked a little bit about the decriminalization movement, but one thing I didn't mention is that Oakland recently, um, with the city council, I passed the bill talking about theogenic plants, saying that, uh, for example, I just wanted to, look, I, I hate the exact quote, but, you know, agenda report from council member Noel Gallo says, and this is just mind-blowing to me that this was spoken, um, for millennia, cultures have respected entheogenic plants and fungi for providing healing, knowledge, creativity, and spiritual connection. So the tide is rising. Um, I, I would suggest that the, the, the tide is rising. It is. And uh, I was also momentarily a POW and, and on drugs and over something ridiculous like a small quantity of cannabis and a couple of uh, pieces of paper. And to see all the progress that's been made, I never thought I'd see the day. And uh, folks like Rick Betty and Mitch are doing an incredible. Uh, when Rick got into this, uh, who would have thought that it'd be possible for the FDA, DEA to approve clinical trials that are so successful? that even the Department of Defense is using it to treat PTSD for victims of war, um, victims of rape and violence and um, end-of-life anxiety. And so it's, it's very encouraging, and if you find a movement, uh, I believe they mentioned a few, just mentioned Denver there was a I, there was a bit there was a guy in Iowa who put out yeah I mean it, it's happening uh, the farm bill CBD is also a mentionable one where you know last year the farm bill in 2018 got passed and although CBT CBD is widely considered um, not psychoactive you know I would suggest that the the whatever it's called the the mycerine and the limonene and all that type of stuff are still present there and so it's at least you know progress on that that front but also um, I guess the only thing other than mentionable recently was in early 2019, an Iowa Republican Senator, Republican uh, Jeff Shipley, said uh, uh, he introduced two bills, removing psilocybin from the Controlled Substances Act there and, and legalizing uh, them for med use or medical use. I, I don't think it's gone anywhere, but nonetheless, um, you know, it's things that are happening other than Oakland, Denver, um, Oregon, like we mentioned, and then the federal bill um, that, that's happening. Um, and then just uh, even though it's really not my area, I just want to make one more comment there. You were talking about, uh, you know, and I want to make more explicit my point when you're dealing with things like PTSD or anxiety. You have a 
uh, a programming that's running a certain program and that maybe the person cannot see beyond and then it's intervention like great things like Rick Dalvin's doing and stuff like that that allows them to see beyond that to break the perceptual corridors that had normally hemmed them in and be able to see themselves or the situation from a new light and so there we go I'm just tying it back into the shifting of lens being back at the eye doctor yourself we get trapped in the boundaries that we create in our minds to make us feel safe and in control. And, uh, perturbing your consciousness to view things from an alternate perspective outside of your normal biases and prejudices and habits uh, could be a rewarding uh, experience. And, um, I'm sure all of you know that. I, in the with the legality issue, seeing all the progress, as Terence McKenna said, if the words life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness do not include the right to use your own body as you see fit, the Declaration of Independence isn't worth the hemp it's written on. I really appreciate everyone coming out, and I really hope you guys have a really awesome rest of your burn. And. Uh, Thank you. We appreciate your time and your attention. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. In closing, I'd like to add a few of my own thoughts about the importance of shamanism in today's modern world, a world that is flooded in technology. Almost 20 years ago, I published a book titled The Spirit of the Internet, Speculations on the Evolution of Global Consciousness. It came out about uh, oh, 10 years or so before the iPhone was first marketed, yet uh, thanks to the many contacts that I had in Silicon Valley at the time, I had some good ideas about where the R&D money in those high-tech firms was being spent. And from that, I extrapolated some ideas about the evolution of our species into a, well, a new form of being, one that many of us are calling Homo Cyber. And I still see Homo Cyber as the logical evolutionary step from our current state of Homo Faber. Obviously, these are cultural terms and aren't intended to signify any biological differences in what scientists call Homo sapiens sapiens. Now uh, we human toolmakers are evolving into beings who are part biological and part cyborg. Perhaps we should call these new shamans who arise under these conditions to be homo cyberdelics. <laughs> but I digress. Right now I'm going to read an abridged ending to the spirit of the internet. And uh, if you want to read the unabridged version, all of my books are available for free at LorenzoHaggerty.com. Now as I read to you, I suggest that you consider the fact that you have already begun your transformation into Homo Cyber. Evidence for this is my hunch that it's been a long time since you have gone a week without your trusty phone at your side. In fact, I'll bet it's been a while since you've even gone a single day without that digital limb in your pocket. Our species is in some kind of a major shift in our approach to the world and to one another. Like it or not, you are an early example of this new form of human. 
My point is that just as humans once used plant medicines to tame their jungle surroundings, today's shamans are using plant medicines to tame the technology that is rapidly taking over our lives. And once again, it is the medicine men and women, the shamans, who are helping us tame this new jungle. Now, here are a few thoughts from the closing chapter of The Spirit of the Internet, which was written in 1999 and published in the summer of the year 2000. Of course, we are faced with the possibility that consciousness may eventually reach a pinnacle of its ability to evolve solely within the biological structure of a human organism. In the terminology of chaos theory, this potential evolutionary dead end can be described as what happens when human consciousness becomes stuck in a less-than-optimal basin of attraction. The time may be close at hand, however, when the gift of self-reflection becomes embedded in a larger structure, one that embraces the entire human species. How else are we going to rise above the narrow-minded thinking that results in wars and massive ecological destruction? Viewed from a planetary perspective, it appears that the natural evolution of the human species has run into some kind of invisible barrier, unable to overcome the demands of our individual egos. It is now up to consciousness itself to take control of the evolution of our species and oversee our transition from toolmaker, homo faber, into a new form of being that becomes virtually inseparable from the technology it creates, homo cyber. As shamans and psychonauts the world over will tell you, the realm of existence in which Gaian consciousness operates contains measureless treasures of mind. A deep love for the earth and concern for its biosphere are actually the result of entering into the state of full Gaian awareness that is to be found in, in Theospace. Picture a world in which the distinctions between cyberspace and what we now consider to be consensual reality begin to blur. No longer would it be fashionable to say one is in cyberspace. Instead, each of us will bring part of cyberspace with us into the material world. Over time, our cognitive distinctions between these worlds will dissolve as devices such as the ones described in the following section become commonplace. If such an incredibly complex environment, packed with cybernetically enhanced human consciousness, follows the patterns discovered by Stuart Kaufman in his work on self-organizing complex systems, it follows that the possibility exists for some form of spontaneous new order to arise out of this densely complex soup of consciousness. Before long, it will be commonplace to see affluent teenagers carrying personal electronic companions, and you should keep in mind that I use that term because, well, this was written 10 years before the iPhone was even invented. <laughs> so I'll begin again here. Before long, it will be commonplace to see affluent teenagers carrying personal electronic companions that are orders of magnitude greater in function than the personal digital assistants used in today's world of business. These new small devices will create a new wave of personal communications unlike anything we have yet experienced. Over time, these devices will become electronic clones of their owners, remembering what books are purchased, which movies are seen, where regular stops are made during the day, and so on. 
These devices will remember where one goes, what one does, and even what one thinks about the quality and importance of the advertisements that are constantly being streamed to them. The kind of world we are about to bring into existence is being shaped each day by thousands of little decisions being made in companies all around the globe. This is why it's so important for all of us to become more involved in discussions about how this powerful technology is to be deployed. Many of the people participating in these online debates are the same ones who go to work each day and make these important decisions. Of prime importance in all of these decisions is the issue of privacy. If we do not clearly establish one's personal privacy as an absolute and inalienable human right, our grandchildren may never know what it's like to have a private moment. Before we know what hit us, teenagers around the world will always be online, always be able to chat with a friend, no matter where either of them may be at the moment. This constant sense of always being connected will bring with it a definitive change in the way they experience this world. In addition to always being connected, many, if not most, of these pre-cyborgs will also be spending some of their time in one or more of their richly textured and densely populated inhabited virtual worlds that will be springing up by the thousands in deep cyberspace, which is one of the portals to entheospace. As more and more minds constantly jump in and out of entheospace, the possibility arises for order to spring from this chaos of mind, and it is this new order that I see as the awakening of the noosphere as foretold by Teilhard de Chardin. It is anyone's guess as to what form this new order will take. It might become manifest in a kind of super-psychic awareness that we all share. In essence, a true global consciousness. Should ever such a moment occur, it would be fair to say that that moment is also when the evolution of global consciousness actually begins. As you may recall, I preface this section with the assumption that within three generations, everyone on Earth will always be connected. What if this transition takes 30 generations instead of only three? Is this any less reason to lay the proper foundation for such a future? At this pivotal moment in the evolution of our species, we are all butterflies on the edge of chaos. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Namaste, my friends. <laughs>